Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. Started by Padre Gotuma and me, Paul Doran, in Belfast in 2011. And we love it. And this is the 10 by 9 podcast. We were back on Zoom this week for our first event of 2022 and the theme, appropriately enough, was at home. And we've three wonderful stories from that evening on this podcast for you. So let's get stuck in. And first up was a 10 by 9 first timer. Here's Nan Fee. Seagulls screech, filling the air with their harsh tones. A homing signal. Hovering low, swooping down with wide white wingspans, they eye up greasy fish and chip packets. Visitors nervously clutch them closer to their breasts. These are for me, pal. The sounds of Malig Harbour, metallic machinery clangs and colourful cranes with robotic arms lift heavy boxes from one boat to the next. That distinctive working harbour smell, a heady mixture of salt, rotten fish, oil, petrol and smoky fumes. A heady mixture indeed. Before long, I am part of the hustling crowd. We begin to move as one, winding our way around the harbour loading bay before showing tickets and walking down the steep ramp, bags weighing heavy on our shoulders and arms. It isn't long before I feel the watery earth beneath my feet and the motion of the ocean. Upstairs for a breath of air and to escape the fussing and seasonal scrambling on board. Usually, I am first to noisily greet old friends and excited squeals of glee and huge hugs. Not this time. This time is different. I am different. I climb the steep steps of the Caledonia McBrain, Loch Nevis Ferry, which serves the small isles of the Inner Hebrides, and push open the heavy deck door, which shuts behind me with a loud bang. Closing my eyes, I turn my face towards the winter sun and breathe in huge gobfuls of fresh sea air. I'm almost home. I can feel it in my bones. I've been a long time away, 17 months to be exact. A self-imposed exile, I suppose you could call it. I remember when I first announced to my friends and family in Belfast back in 2017, that I was moving to the Isle of Egg, my wee slice of paradise where the mountains meet the sea. 17 miles from the mainland, 12 square miles with a one track road, four and a half miles long that goes from one side of the island to the other. My muse, my inspiration, my creative and spiritual home. They'd all known for a long time of my love affair with the place, Still, it was a shock and a disappointment when I made my plans clear to them that I'd be moving away from home home, from Ireland, I mean, and over to Egg, to my other home. I'd gone for the primary school teacher job, teaching just four wee ones, and I'd got it. A new chapter beckoned. They had their reservations. What about Babushka, my Kate Bush act that was just taking off in the north? What about my love of theatre, the arts, the singing, pubs, 10 by 9, 
all the things that made me come alive. I didn't know how to respond except with a deeply instinctual, I know, I just know that this is the right move for me. Egg is where I should be. Another reservation some shared that sometimes jarred. And what about a man? Who are you going to meet on an island with only 100 people? How old are you now, Nan? 33? You're not getting any younger, you know. Soon there'll only be divorcees and men with baggage left. One friend in particular who doesn't mince his words. Defiantly, I'd respond, well, I haven't met a man so far in London or in Belfast. So if I find him anywhere, I'll find him on egg. Or should I say, he'll find me in the place where I feel most at home. What a load of nonsense finding the one. A fixed idea built on the fantasies and unrealistic expectations of an unhealthy diet of Disney princesses and happily ever after films. Shortly after arriving on Egg, I used to actually watch folk come in off the boat and wonder, is that him? Is he the one? One day I did see someone special come off the boat I met someone I believed was perfect and I placed on him all of the dreams, fantasies and unrealistic expectations of love that I'd foolishly built up in my head and heart over 34 years. He couldn't live on egg due to his own life circumstances. So I made the heartbreaking decision to leave my beloved home of two years and move to the East Coast to be with him in his cottage in a very rural farmland, one neighbour. My decision wasn't taken lightly. There were countless sleepless nights, tears, so many tears, long drawn out heart to hearts with my soul pals. But in the end, I left it all, everything, my community, my job, the kids, my charming wee stone bothy, my pals, the music, the West Coast crack. Because you see, I never believed that I had any other choice. I sacrificed myself on the altar of finding my one true love. Wasn't that what I was supposed to do? Five months later, lockdown, isolation, loneliness and loss. Every day waking up with the knot in my stomach, every morning running to the shower so that he couldn't hear my deep guttural sobs. A fierce, wild, deeply instinctual call that banged my body like a drum. This is not right. I ignored it for 17 months, by the end of which I was unrecognizable to myself. My best friend, who had watched quietly from the wings as I slipped further and further away from myself, finally persuaded me to leave and come home. She picked me up, a broken wee thing, and drove me home back to my parents, who cared for me like an egg, until I was ready to leave them again for egg. I am so grateful to her for making that trip. 
coming home was not an easy road. Healing never is. And there was much of it to be done. But egg has something about it. I'm certainly not the first to say it. It has a healing quality. You come away from egg feeling better, changed, renewed. Perhaps it's the geology of the place. The skur rises up out of the island at the south side, forming a high ridge and distinctive landmark. Made of pitchstone from an ancient volcanic eruption, some say that the obsidian that forms part of the rock has healing qualities. Or maybe it's the water from St. Columba's well, said to be blessed by the man himself. That's St. Column Kill to us Irish ones. Back when the Irish missionary monks came in their traditional coracle boats over to these parts to Christianize the Picts. Holy water, my good pal Eddie calls it. Indeed, the tribal leaders from an indigenous Colombian tribe, the Misak, who came to visit Egg a few years ago, agreed that the water is indeed holy and it has healing qualities. So maybe it was the land that helped me heal. Or maybe it's the people, my beautiful community of Egg. Good natured, high spirited, great crack, loving, kind, caring, supportive, generous. I could literally go on all day. The best. Intergenerational friendships abound here. A place where the soon to be lost art of Kalian, the old Gaelic tradition of calling into a house unannounced for a story, a tune, a song and a dram, still is going strong. The Egeek welcomed me back with open arms, love and acceptance. Or maybe it's the time, egg time as it's known, which seems to move slower and carries none of the weight, stress or anxiety that mainland time can tend to do. Or was it the space, the majestic, unspoiled beauty of the place? You could walk all day and not meet another soul, space to be. Or was it the magic? The feeling that the magic that our ancestors knew so well, the spirituality of the land, of the trees and of nature is still all around, almost palpable. It was all of these things that helped me to heal and more. And I count my blessings every single day. Mountains rise majestically out of the sea as we pass sky, the coolins piercing the clouds. I ease myself back against the boat's hull and sneakily take a sip from my hip flask. The whiskey slides down my throat, igniting my belly with a strangely satisfying burn. Ishkaveha, water of life. It breathes life into my spirit. My whole being is more alive than it's been in months. Ahead, egg comes into view, a huge green dragon rising up from the sea. My happily ever after. Feeling the warmth of my hands on my heart, a deep sense of peace falls upon me as I realize, perhaps for the first time, that the love of my life that I had been waiting for all these years had been right here waiting for me all of my life. I was finally coming home to myself. 
Nan, that is so beautiful. I, there's people in the um, people in the chat saying that they're googling the island of egg <laughs> at the moment, and my guess is that is. Did you say the population is a hundred? I about hundred and fifteen. Oh yeah, so I think the population is going to grow exponentially <laughs> in the next couple of days as um, people decide that they're going to move over there. You make it so beautiful sounding. Thanks so much, Nan. It seemed like half your family was in the audience, and it was wonderful. Thanks for joining us from Egg, and we look forward to enjoying your Kate Bush tribute act at some point. Now, if you have a story for 10 by 9 or you want to know more about what we do, check out our website, 10 by 9com There's plenty of info there, including all our 2022 dates and a few other surprises. OK, we've not had a story from him on the podcast for a while. Join us from New York, and you might hear some typical New York noises in the background. It's Podrigal Tuma. Um, so in 2002, I moved home to Ireland from Australia. And it was a shock to me that I'd be moving back to Ireland. When I'd left five years earlier, I always imagined I'd never live in Ireland again. I mean, I like coming home for visits, but living abroad, first in Switzerland and then in Australia, was a total joy. And I moved home mostly so I could study. But there was another reason, too. I was keen to kiss a man. Now, not one particular man, just any man, really. I was 27, out as gay to a few friends, but not many. And I was keen to imagine a free world outside of the religion that had been part of my life for so long, where I could go on dates. I'd worked with a religious group during my days overseas, and um, if I'd ever kissed anybody, I'd have been fired. So I gave notice and I packed my stuff in bags, sent some boxes home to Ireland from Australia and made, made the move not back to Cork, but to Dublin. And I'd already arranged to get a place to live in Dublin. Three people who I'd known for years were looking for a housemate and they rented a huge old house near Dunlera and the rent was affordable. And so the trip and the move was easy. And I needed to live in Ireland for a year before I could qualify for a student grant. So I got some jobs locally and settled into living with fantastic housemates. There was loads of shared meals and evenings around the fire or the television and a household of people who were always very patient when I had various strange religious friends from around the world coming to visit. And one particularly strange religious friend asked, could he come for three days? And three days was about all I could imagine managing with him. And so, like in Egypt, I said, yeah, of course. So when he arrived, he said, oh, I got my times mixed up. I'm not staying for three days. I'm staying for 10. And this was the 19th of December. He was staying for Christmas. I had a huge freezing bedroom and I gave my not very welcome friend um, the bed and I slept on a sofa that was in the corner. And that might have been what drove me over the edge, just having him around for so long. I had been cautiously continuing on a conversation with a fellow I'd met in a gay support group. Um, and this fellow, Jimmy, and I had chatted a few times and it was all very tame. And with my very peculiar religious friend sleeping in my own bed in the corner, I decided I need a break. So I messaged Jimmy and I said, could we meet for a drink? And I told my not very welcome friend who was visiting for 10 days, not three, that I was working late, complete lie. And I went out for a drink that might or might not have been my very first date. I told nobody about going on a date. I wish I had. I'd come back from Ireland, moved away from an overly religious environment so I could be more open about myself. But somehow I couldn't find the words to talk about it to anyone. I didn't fear judgment from my housemates at all. They were magnificent. The problem was me. I was just shy and embarrassed, really. And so now the problem was my visiting for 10 days instead of three guests. He definitely would have given me all the judgment. He was not a fan of the gays. So I lied and I went into the city to meet Jimmy. 
I was uh, really nervous, but mostly because he told me that he adored Michael Jackson and I don't adore Michael Jackson. And I was wor- worrying what we were going to talk about. Um, Michael Jackson had just dangled a baby over a balcony a few weeks previously. And I just thought of him. he was entirely strange. And in all the anxiety of going on the date, I was mostly fixating on how am I going to talk to someone whose musical tastes I disagree with um, rather than anything else about my life. And this might be called what psychoanalysts call displacement or projection or whatever Freud would have said for being closeted and pretty fucked up. Anyway, so I met Jimmy and he was a total laugh, completely easygoing. I had a great family, a bunch of friends, a job. I can't remember what it was, something to do with computers. It was a job that he was good at, but it didn't consume him outside of his work. I told him nervously that he didn't like my, that I didn't like Michael Jackson and he laughed and called me an idiot. And I asked him if he liked reading poetry, and then he laughed at me and said that he was more of a Maeve Binchy fan, actually. And I'd read a few of Maeve Binchy's books when I was away, and I'd liked them. So we had some stuff to talk about. He was driving, so he just had one drink, and it was all very nice. And after the drink, he said to me, um, do you want to um, uh, go for a walk or something? And now that I look back on it, I think he probably meant more of an emphasis on or something than an actual walk. But I didn't understand that. I was taking things very literally. So I said, I love going for walks on the beach. Let's go to Clontarf. It wasn't far away. The poor man did look a little bit bewildered. So it was freezing and we went for a walk along the beach on a dark night in December. And getting back into the car, when we got back in, he leant over and kissed me. It was the first time I'd ever been, I'd ever kissed a man. And suddenly we had something that we did both enjoy. Michael Jackson, definitely not. Poetry, definitely not. May have been she, kind of, but not really. But kissing, yes. It was all so lovely. And then I was really frightened and exhilarated. Kissing a man near a beach in Dublin, where previously I had only been for prayer meetings in order to bind up the spirits of evil coming from other principalities and powers across the water. And I think that might have been the downfall I was so, so frightened and I broke off the kiss and I looked at him with absolute seriousness about to say something. And looking back on it, I think for him, he was just thinking, this is a nice kiss next to a beach with a fella I probably won't see again, but a lovely way to end a pleasant evening. For me, it was, this is the first time I've engaged in homosexual activity with another man. And so I felt the need to make a statement. I was falling apart, really. So I looked at him very seriously and said to him, I need to tell you that we will not be able to get married and spend our lives together. And of all the things he was expecting me to say, I imagine this was not what he was expecting me to say. This was in 2002. Civil partnerships weren't even legal and homosexuality hadn't even been formally decriminalized 20 years at this stage. It hadn't even been formally decriminalized 10 years at that stage. So needless to say, the idea of marriage with me was not on his mind. And I have no idea why I was talking the way I was talking. I babbled on about how I thought I was going to be a priest and how maybe I should reconsider the priesthood and how secrets weren't good for me and how I didn't have anybody in my life who knew I was gay. And I think he could see how frightened I was because he then said, do you want a cup of tea? And I said, yes, because the idea of a cup of tea was absolute godsend. 
And so next to the beach, there was a takeaway place, usual kind of place, really bad. And we sat outside freezing, the salty smell of water in the air. There was others around us ordering chips and burgers. And me and him sat with large cardboard um, cups of milky tea. And I saw his real kindness because he'd met someone who was clearly petrified and shocked and probably deranged and religiously delusional, barely out of the closet, and who couldn't see anything beyond his own fear. Me, I'm talking about. And I was babbling and I knew it. And I was telling him about all the monasteries I'd stayed at, trying to figure out whether I'd ever become a priest. And I kept on talking and talking. And after we'd finished the tea, he said to me, I'll drive you home. He got out of the car to give me a hug. And he said, take care of yourself. And then he drove off. Presumably, kind as he was, to be <laughs> rid of such a babbling idiot. And I went up to my room and went in quietly, trying not to wake my friend who didn't like the gaze and who would come to stay for three days, but was actually about to stay for 10. And trying to sleep on my couch in the room, I could hear my friend sleeping, breathing heavily, but I couldn't sleep. I was wondering, why did I move back home for this when I'm still so frightened of it? Why did I move back home for all this secrecy and desire? And then I kept on thinking about the kiss and the fear and the cup of tea and the beach and being home and that very kind man, Jimmy. Ah, uh, Padraig, you're nothing but a shameless hussy. Thanks so much and thanks for that story. We both got a bit of a shock this week when we saw Jamie Dornan reading a poem of Padraig's on YouTube for a local poetry project. And if you'd like to see it, and why wouldn't you, just search Jimmy Dornan poem and it should pop up. Now, as you know, Temba Nine is always free and always will be, but we would be really grateful if you could help us keep it going, the events and the podcast, with the donation via Patreon or PayPal. Our overheads are low, but just now, our income is lower. There are links at the website, tembanine.com. But of course, the best way to support us is to keep listening. Okay, on to our third story, and next is David Simpson. He was at home in County Donegal. Your mother has been attacking other residents. I'm afraid you will have to take her away. She can no longer stay in the home. We were dumbstruck. I specifically remember asking that she could stay either till she died or until she needed a nursing home. Apparently not. What if her behavior got worse? Would we find her another home? Would they take her? Will we have to section her? The thoughts horrified me. Where would this end? Over the previous years, it had become clear that my mother could no longer live on her own. We had got her to agree to having a cleaning agency come once a week. She was fine for a while when the cleaners were women in their forties, then the agency sent younger women in their 20s. Mum was not happy. She would loiter in the entrance to the flats and ambush them. I don't need you today, go away. A few months later, we had an urgent call to come to her. Smoke was seeping out under her front door into the corridor. With sirens wailing, the fire brigade arrived. Firemen in breathing apparatus entered mum's flat. A fireman found the grill arm burning a piece of toast. He opened all the windows. It wasn't me, my mother insisted. The fireman came in to check the windows. It must have been something to do with health and safety. 
The smoke must have come from the flat below. The fact that the floors were made of concrete wasn't a consideration. There was never any reasoning with her. Her neighbors met us in the corridor and told us we had to do something about our mother. It was after all, the third time the fire brigade had been called. As a family, we went looking for a care home. We visited three, discounting two of them. One because it was badly done up like a boutique hotel. The other was a much extended private house that wouldn't have worked. The room was in the attic with a toilet built into the corner and on one wall, the emergency fire exit. It didn't feel safe for her. In the end, we chose one with plenty of lounge spaces with almost luxury furniture. And as a result, luxury fees. It was like a five-star hotel. What sold it to us was that she could have an end room that was next to a snug with a little balcony. It was almost like a small flat. Now all we had to do was convince her she needed to go into a home. I'm bored. I'm fed up with housework. Why don't you go into a home? where all that will be done by other people. That idea got her attention and she agreed to visit the home we had chosen. The room was on the top floor with windows looking out over the hills. She loved it. She spotted a plane taking off from a small private aerodrome. Oh look, I can watch planes. She'd spent two very happy years towards the end of the Second World War working in a canteen on an airbase. Her fondness for planes mirrored her reported fondness for a certain New Zealand pilot. We came away happy that she liked the home and had agreed to move in. Later that day, I casually asked, what do you think you might take to the home, mum? Well, the dining room table, obviously. I was confused and a little wary. Uh, Mum, you do realise you only have one bedroom. What? I can't take the dining room table. I'm not going. So we were back to the drawing board. We had to mount another strategy. I forget what approach we took, but I did get her to agree to move in again. We moved her in. We all took her for walks to the airfield where, where you could sit in a cafe, have tea and cake, and watch local parachutists floating down to the airfield. We had many visits sitting with her in the home, which ended with her following us to the locked front door and trying to come out with us. She would stand with tears in her eyes. Not an easy time. And then we were summoned to the home, to a meeting with the manager and the care supervisor. I'm afraid you'll have to take your mother away. She can no longer stay in the home. In desperation, we contacted the local social work team for the elderly. A new social worker visited mum several times in the home and watched her interact with the staff and the residents. The social worker said, I know exactly the kind of person your mother is and exactly the kind of care that she needs. This home is not giving it to her. That was a relief. 
Nightmares of sec sectioning her receded. The home was at fault, not our mother. But we still had to find another home. My twin brother and I called at an older red brick home, possibly originally a council home. The manager greeted us. Do you want a drink? Well, a cup of tea would be nice. No, I mean an alcoholic drink. Are you allowed drinks in a care home? Come with me, she said. And she took us into an open room off the main corridor with a proper bar down one side with beers, Guinness and wines. My brother laughed out loud. How'd you get away with this? Oh, it's open on Saturdays for socials with residents and their families. I'll have a Guinness then, I said. My brother took a beer. We sat down on some sofas. The cook and the housekeeper came out from the kitchen and joined us and we chatted for two hours. I'm ready to move in, joked my brother. Show me my room. What I really liked was one or two residents came and said hello and went off, all very natural and relaxed. Then what really settled it for me was the house cat wandered in, rubbed themselves against our legs and wandered back out again. It wasn't luxurious. It hadn't been refurbished by an interior decorator or even an interior designer. Her room wasn't ensuite but it felt like a home. And it was clear that the staff made it at home. We got mum moved. The cook told us later that she sat with mum for, for most of the first day as my mum wailed. At one point, the cook asked her, do you wail a lot, Margaret? And my mum stopped wailing, turned to the cook and said, oh yes, and then went back to wailing for the rest of the day. As time passed, it was clear she didn't really know who we were. I visited once and she said, oh, how nice of you to come. I knew I could have been anybody. One time I got to show her the garden. My mum liked nothing better than sunning herself in a garden. I took her down to a seat below a large Scots pine tree. We sat in silence, relaxing. Then we went back in. The last time I saw her, I did her nails and put cream on her hands and feet. When I turned round from putting things away, she disappeared. I found a member of staff. I've lost her. She'll be sitting in the armchair by the kitchen where she, where she can see what's going on. And she was sitting there. So I said goodbye. This time she didn't come with me to the door. At her funeral, five staff members came, including the manager with her five-week-old baby. I was so moved to have babies there. The cook approached me. It's going to be very quiet without her. You always knew Margaret was about. She'd wail at least once a day. The manager said, throughout all her time with us, she would come into the office, sit in a chair and watch us work. Every so often she'd say, of course, I may not stay much longer. I may have to go home. I cried in gratitude for the staff in that home who knew how to treat a prima donna. Out of the goodness of their hearts, 
They made sure that she felt at home. Right up until the night, she died peacefully in her sleep. Oh, David, thank you very much. That was wonderful. I have to say, and I'm reflecting the views of several people in uh, the room, and that is, what's the address of this nursing home? Send it to my children, please. <laughs> Let's hope the nursing home option is still a few decades away, but thanks so much, David. And that's it for this podcast. We love hearing from you, so keep in touch with us either on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, email, which is story at 10by9.com, or visit the website, which is 10by9.com. Keep an eye for upcoming events and themes and tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It's the best way to get noticed. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. For now, bye-bye. <laughs>